Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by returning guest, Matthew Arrett, a multifaceted journalist, artist, and senior fellow at the American University in Moscow. As the driving force behind the Canadian Patriot Review, Matthew's voice resonates in the world of geopolitics. His literary contributions include two four-volume series. The first is The Untold History of Canada and the other Clash of the Two Americas. Beyond writing, he's a co-founder and vice president of the Rising Tide Foundation, promoting education and intercultural dialogue. Matthew's expertise isn't just confined to the written word. He's also a talented illustrator and storyboard artist. With a passion for history, geopolitics, and the arts, Matthew's insights are both profound and enlightening. I always tell him how he speaks in historical citations. I love our conversations. And today, I've asked him to come back on the show to help explain more on his insights into the world and where the world is headed. So, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Hey, Daryl. I'm doing very well. Thank you. And thank you for that very generous, eloquent introduction. I don't. I almost feel like I don't deserve it, but I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's an honor and a pleasure. And I, like I said, I really do enjoy our, our conversations. And again, I've gone through some of your stuff. But that's how I first discovered you. And part of why I reached out was just clearly it's your passion. And clearly you're very knowledgeable. And I could even fact check the things that you said. And that was something that I really valued because I, I hope I question everything. I know I get fooled every now and then, but I just love it so much. Before we get into any of this stuff, how did you get this wealth of knowledge on that. How did you begin to understand the history through a different lens than just what we're told in the, the mainstream history books? Yeah, I don't I don't often get asked those sorts of subjective autobiographical questions that often. So it's good. It's good practice to think about it myself. Like what caused that sort of pathway, which is not conventional. My, myself, just thinking back to it, I, I, I do think that a big uh, reference point I have that I think was a big qualitative shift in, in where I was going relative to me thinking myself 20 years ago in university, studying illustration and design. I got a degree there. I went into a film animation, which was more of a fine artsy film animation mm. program in Concordia's Mel Oppenheim School of Cinema. That was around 2005. I found myself there and it gave me a sort of taste of at least two worlds I didn't want to be in. The first illustration and design orientation was very commercial oriented, commercial art. A lot of my my, my friends were going into, they were aspiring to be in the video game sector. Montreal has a, a bustling video game design sector. Right. I didn't really want to do that. Or maybe textile design, graphic design for some commercial advertising agency. I didn't really want to do that either. So it was very make money, be popular, accommodate to the tastes of whatever is, is being sold in society. I didn't really, I wasn't feeling that so much. So that's where I decided let's go to something a little bit more pure, authentic. So I went into the fine arts program in university and uh, did two years of that. And I, I got another taste of another imbalanced extreme where I found that post- modernist deconstructive ideologues had been, had dominated for many decades the curriculum of the fine arts program in general mm. and there was an ethics of ugliness an aesthetics that aspired to deconstruct ideas to the point of being unintelligible ugly emotions basically and and the philosophy underlying all of what was praised in the school system was that art should be a mirror to reality and since reality is hypocritical, ugly, and disgusting, so should art be. 
to make people mm. uncomfortable with the mm. hypocrisy of the illusions that they live in. And I get where that's coming from. But at the same time, I'm, I was thinking to myself, if we're just a mirror for the ugliness of the world, how are we possibly playing any role of making the world better? Couldn't we, aren't we just making the world more disturbed by being right. a representation of that? So that at least gave me a sense of the sickness, but I still didn't know what was going on. And it was around that time that I started looking into 9-11, a little bit around 2004. <laughs> and it doesn't take you long to encounter a number of solid, questions. Yeah, exactly. The, at least the, the popular narrative, what we were being told was obviously wrong. So that got my mind thinking what is true. And, and so if there is at a certain point, you can't really account for a lot of these things, both in terms of what came before 9-11, 9-11 itself, the, the obscuring of uh, the reality of how two planes could take three buildings down, a lot of the other things that unleashed a never-ending process of wars, of regime change, killing millions in the Middle East and a surveillance state dragnet that had been spreading. And it was still a new thing, just a few years into it. But I was very much bothered by the fact that people who appeared to be educated and who should hold more educated views and opinions about such matters. Like I, for example, I was taking an elective law course on criminal law just to keep my 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 logical side of my brain alive right. a little bit because you can get, it gets mushy in the artistic world. It does, it's really bad. And I spoke to, after class, the professor who was himself a practicing legal uh, a lawyer in Canada. I'll leave his name out for now, but he was a member of the Privy Council of Canada, a very high up person on the inside. And I was like, okay, well, you seem like a very smart person. I, I was sharing with him some of what I was looking into after class in his office one day regarding 9-11 and some other things regarding the murder of JFK. And I was just trying to get some feedback. And uh, I was disturbed by just how quick he was to shut me down. And I'm like, but you're like supposed to be the top of the line. So anyway, that, that gave me a sense that there was some connection to the cultural, because it wasn't just him. It was like, there was just a lack of hunger to know truth in the, yeah. the general society. So then I, I started getting a sense that the cultural sickness that I was experiencing and was a part of in the school system, this cult of ugliness, had something to do with the cultural problem that generated mediocre people with mediocre minds who only wanted to be told what to think instead of think for themselves. So <sighs> I was I, that put me through a bit of trauma for a couple of years. I was trying to process this. I, I took it very seriously. I couldn't just go back into the, into the normie land very easily. It's like the Matrix. Once you wake up, you really can't. Some people, they're trying really hard to plug back in and it's not working very well. No, it makes a lot of, like you got to smoke a lot, a lot of dope to, to just do that. But even then you're still going to be depressed. So I, I found myself really reading like I'd never read before. It was like obsessive. And I think overall a, a good thing, though, maybe at the time I could have been a little bit more tempered on it. But but I, I started picking up this idea that I should read original texts. So instead of reading about yes. Albert Pike and Freemasonic Free operations, I was like, how about I just read Albert Pike himself? Because yeah. everyone's giving me opinions about Freemasonic. Yes. Like, let me read these people. And I did. I, I pursued a lot of original writings. I started listening to a lot of JFK speeches. I got a, a, in a habit of looking at well, what were the policies that great people were doing who got cut down? What were they trying to do for society? So that gave me, it started painting a picture, but it, it it was still leaving me with a sense of depression in the sense that I didn't know what to do, though I had a better sense of the diagnostic of the sickness. And then it was only when I came across on a smoke break when I was at work one day at, a, at an ad agency that I, I was, I saw a political table for a Lyndon LaRouche organization. There was a small branch in Canada and there was some, for anybody who out there might've, have you ever seen a LaRouche organizing table? No. No. Okay. It was. Every once in a while, you go to some cities in Detroit or New York, or in this case, it was Montreal, and you'll see downtown a, a little political table with literature and, and provocative signage to try to provoke 
people to have a have a political conversation, right? Okay. Something like that struck my eye. There was a little table. There was, uh, and there was a, a sign saying something to do with stop the depopulation agenda. And I was like, I could talk about that. So I, I'm wasting my time. I'm talking and I'm having a conversation. And I was happy to discover that this person I was speaking to, while I didn't agree with a lot of what they were saying, they did have a solution orientation that I was lacking and mm. uh, a sort of sense that there were ways out of the fire. And I mm. didn't think that the New World Order at the time had any resistance. I was like, there's no way. It's just a matter of waiting for the big kill. That's all we got to do. Unfortunately, that's hence depression. But then I was like, okay, there, there seems to be something I, I haven't thought about. And this organization has been around for many decades and there's international aspects to it. So I was like, okay, I can get behind this. And I began volunteering and working for that organization, mm. which I did for about a decade. And that gave me a chance to, I think, just focus a lot where I just did that increasingly full time. I, I dropped out of school. I just focused on that. There was a, enough fundraising within the organization. It was hard living, but there was enough to keep a roof over my head and I wasn't starving. Yeah, so I was able to ramen. do that. Huh? <laughs> A lot of ramen, a lot of, yeah, Yeah, (laughs) sardines, but, but it it was good. It was like, because the focus was partially on, I found myself doing a high density amount of political organizing to try to like, just talk to strangers walking down the street. And that's just an interesting experience. Just trying to have platonic dialogues with people who are just walking in Shadowland and you're trying to pull them out of the shadows. That's so that's, I I got to learn a lot of, I got to practice the the art of communication and Mm -hmm. dialectic which is interesting. And then the other thing was there was a focus on education. So when, within the, the LaRouche organization at the time, especially with the younger members, there was a high focus on, on a curriculum, going through the original discoveries of great scientists who made discoveries, read their mm. writings, and try to just focus over the course of months and months at a time, reading through the writings of Johannes Kepler, who discovered the laws of planetary motion. There's a lot of focus on on observational astronomy. We had, we had worked with telescopes, as well to learn how to do practical astronomy as well. There's a focus also on ancient Platonic dialogues. So read Plato's dialogues, work it through as a group, try to figure out what is Plato trying to figure out so you could replicate these things in your own mind. And that was, that took up a lot of my most qualitatively appreciated time. I'm really happy that experience was something I got to get under into my belly. And I got to, I found that there's a, a sort of way of thinking, regardless of which great discoverer I was reading, there was a common mode of analysis and self-referential thinking of thinking about thinking about what, what is yeah, the mind doing yeah, yeah. when it is trying to resolve a paradox. So how does it identify a paradox and how does it resolve a paradox? What is the method? And you find that there's this common motion and a common spirit of heart, a, a common love of beauty, which is very much tied to the pursuit of truth. So truth, beauty, very much tied to the opposite of ugliness lies, right? So the, when you destroy, disrupt people's ability aesthetically, and this comes goes back to my education experience in, in fine arts, if right. you can disrupt a society's ability to judge ugliness or judge beauty, you also disrupt their ability to, to judge truth, truth and falsehood. So then they could find flowery language said by a Trudeau or Obama, very pretty language that they then judge only on the surface and don't see the ugly reality behind the surface flower sweetness. That was all very good. And I think my when I began to apply that discuss, that method a little bit to try to to solve certain problems that were bothering, bothering me, like what, what was Canada? I was supposed to organize in Canada. I was going to parliament, trying to organize parliamentarians and senators. We we're having meetings with embassies, but I didn't have, or I didn't know fully the terrain of what the hell this British monarchy of Canada was. What is the Privy Council? What right. is 
the lieutenant governor's offices? What is this deep state structure that I seem to I had a better idea of it in the United States because the, the LaRouche organization is a U.S. organization mm-hmm. with a lot of U.S. research under its belt since the 60s. So they pieced together a lot of puzzles very efi- efficiently over that time. But Canada was relatively untapped domain. I didn't know nobody did the work. So I was like, I'm going to try to take the lead and figure out some of these bigger questions. And it bore fruit. It worked. It took a lot of work. But and that turned into my research on the untold history of Canada that I first began publishing in 2012. After uh, a lot of research and a, and some good collaborators I found to work with, a lot of time spent in the Montreal archives in right. Ottawa. And, right. and, that, and then increasingly that manifested in the Canadian Patriot Review magazine around that time and, and a few other things. But I think that's my autobiographical experience. And of your par- are your parents in the geopolitics? Is this something that you sat around talking about at the dinner table as a kid or what? No, no, we didn't talk about that stuff. No. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. So we've hit on a couple of really interesting things. I think our first, I love you talk about primary sources and first principles. Do you speak to that? What is that for people that maybe have never heard those terms before? First principle simply means causal causality. If, if you think about, there's two different categories of causality. First lesson, okay, for anybody, just general lesson of thinking. If I release this pen, I just, what caused the pen to be released? If you're a materialist, and this matters, the mechanical explanation is useful, but it has its place. It shouldn't be elevated to something more than what it is. The mechanical reason is what? If I ask you this, what caused me mechanically? I let go of it. Yeah. And I could always, I could find another, why did I let go of it? I could say, what caused me to let go of it? Why you're, we could get really mechanical, but you, your hand open. My hand open. And if I say, what caused that? I could say like my nerves, right? Right. I, I had some like reaction between the synaptic activity in my brain, my nerves causing my bones to release, will cause my bones to release, will the muscle really, and that I could go, that's an infinite uh, regression I regression. could take I, if I wanted to. There's no point of stopping anywhere because it's, there's always something else in between. So that's useful, but it, it's very limited. If the satisfying, what you could call motive principle, ultimately the sufficient reason that made all of those material things happen was what? The pen drop. Yeah, but the motive principle, what was the true cause of all of this? You desired, I don't know, your brain. Yeah. yeah. I desired it. I had an intention. I wanted to make a point, right? So that metaphysical, that's not a physical thing. That that intention I had isn't a physical thing like all of those predicates were. So it's like that for any conspiracy. With human affairs, we're, we're a creature animated not simply by gravity and our biological mechanisms, which are important. Obviously, if you starve, you're not going to think too much if you can't eat. But that's not all we are, right? So we're a species animated by ideas and mm-hmm. ide- uh, wrong ideas and right ideas that are more or less in alignment with the, the truth right. will manifest in decisions we make, both in terms of what goes on outside of us, as well as the decisions to shape that that will shape our identities, how we see ourselves. So our identity, we're, animals just are what they are. They don't like celebrate their great grandpa lion. Right. The great grandpa lion happened. But it's not like humans where we can go and read the writings of great grandpa and have a right. communication with Plato 2000 years earlier, who's been long dead, but I could still communicate right. with Plato in that sense. So we have this, because of this question of, of free will, ideas, identity, we, we can choose to be our nature, or we could choose to be outside of our nature, to fall off of our path and become more bestialized, more inclined to do some things that give us the appearance of happiness, but not the real thing that maybe right. even give us more senses of absence and regret later on more 
deeper spiritual pain later by giving into momentary desires for fame or pleasure or whatever, right? Name a vice. So conspiracies are like that. If you want to know the, the motive force of a conspiracy or of human affairs, you have to go to ideas and tensions. And this is where in the, and especially the sixties, there was this uh, program to say conspiracy theories. Right. Don't exist. It, it, you're, it's irresponsible to think about conspiracy theories because everything can be reduced to some combination of corruption and stupidity. And if you, <laughs> and and you don't need to think about it any more deeply. Like the lone gunman was stupid. He killed Kennedy. The and somebody else was corrupt, and they did something bad. They started a war in Vietnam because they were corrupt and wanted money for the military industrial complex. You don't right, have to think right. about it any more than that. And it's, that really handicaps your ability to understand anything causal. So that's my point on. And what was your other question? Those well, primary sources and first principles. The values. Okay, so that's first prin- That's first principles in the sense of the human domain. The right. first principles otherwise often deal with the question of God, the idea of the soul. Because why are we good? Why do we do good things? Why do we? Why right. are we willing to sacrifice for children? There's things that sometimes we're not even aware of that deal with the question of our soul, our conscience that dances with our reason that is related to our concept of the the purpose of our life design of our life the purpose which is tied to the idea of if there's a design then there's a designer that implies an idea god was the purpose of the universe right so that that you always have to go there in in even healthy science you'll find a da vinci or an einstein or a max planck always have that idea of first principle and primary sources why is that? Yeah, just what is that? Yeah, just don't read Wikipedia. You don't have to read Wikipedia. Wikipedia could help on a first approximation of anything, but rather than reading an encyclopedia entry or some expert telling you what to think about somebody, whether you want to know about Ben Franklin or uh, Dante Alighieri, the first thing to do would be to read Ben Franklin's writings. There's a lot of them. I, you can get them. It's Ben Franklin. You just read his writings, read his letters, read his autobiography, read Dante Alighieri's letters, read his De Monarchia read his comedia and then develop your own thoughts develop and and look at what the, these people dante or ben franklin were doing in the world that they lived in what identity did they have themselves that shaped how they intervened mm-hmm. da vinci once said I, I discovered in looking at the lives of great people that they didn't wait for things to happen to them they went out and happened to things mm. and that's what people are doing like they're they are not satisfied with the injustice of a world and, mm-hmm. and understand that they have to do something to intervene they can't make it all better but they can make themselves qualified right. to play a positive role in shaping a process towards the good. So you can do that. And you'll find that in after that exercise takes place, which takes a bit of time, but it's worth it. Then you can revisit a lot of the expert opinions about these figures and find that they're mostly all wrong. They're yeah. outright lying about what they were a part of and, and develop a structure based on your own sovereign mind, having constructed an edifice that is yeah. that has solid foundation instead of other people's opinions contaminated with half truths or lies and pre-digested opinions about things that like you said that yeah. may be half truths and something a lot of people i think is a good prerequisite for people to be aware of is there's something called the rep- reputation management companies pay big money to companies there was a book written called the google bomb and it was basically in the early days of google basically a malicious and unhappy customer just took it upon themselves to tear down some guy's business uh, because they just weren't happy and maybe a little psychotic. And so this, the book was like a warning and a need to pay attention to and to cater. Your reputation is everything. And what other people, what are other people saying about us? And with power of the internet, someone could easily go make 
a hundred free accounts. If they were that motivated, they go make a hundred free accounts and leave you bad reviews. There's something called the Oprah effect where Oprah's team had to investigate companies before they get mentioned or featured on her show because it would kill businesses. If you have a nice little bakery and Oprah's, oh, I love this little bakery on the corner of whatever and whatever. She says on national TV and you get slammed with 50,000 people, phone calls, drop bys, orders on your online store. And you're like a small operation of five people. People don't care that you were inundated with work. The negative reviews will pile up and swallow you where the sense mm. of, hey, like they got my order wrong. Hey, they took so long to get this. And so they call it the Oprah effect where mm. it would have a big boost or it could kill your business if you weren't prepared. They actually would have to have a team audit your business. Are you prepared for this, right? Like, is this going to, are we going to kill your business and your livelihood right. because we're going <laughs> to bombard you with so much flow and traffic. And so there's a whole industry called reputation management. And this is where companies pay big money to have their reputation managed. Politicians, all these sorts of people make bad things that happened in my past. People talk about go away, bad head, very bad headlines. This is an old strategy where even when I am a martial arts school in Kingston, we would create content and list it on multiple websites. You'd have a Wikipedia page. You'd have a Squidoo lens. You'd have a WordPress blog on like your own, but you'd also have it on domain.wordpress.org because your site could only take out one listing on the internet. And so by getting on all these other platforms and getting articles about you written and things, you could now push everything down. And the best place to hide a body is the second page of Google search results. So that's this whole reputation thing. And there's, so there's money in being able to create good publicity for people hmm. and to hide and bury bad publicity. And people hmm. have short memories in a lot of ways. So I think this is an important thing as a bit of a prerequisite to know that's part of why it's really important that we do work from primary sources and first principles. The whole concept of fact checking websites in itself, it's them saying, hey, don't burden yourself with having to do your own research. Let us just tell you what to think. And if you just search on a couple of different search engines and compare it with Google, you'll find that Google search results have been designed now to tell you what to think on the topic. It's not just, I need the facts of this. It's, oh, here's the answer that you need to be thinking of on this topic. And that's a really powerful thing when it's just a subtle difference between here are the facts, which you might be more likely to get like on a Yahoo search versus this is what your opinion should be on the topic, which is yeah. implicitly is, is said. And that's, but was it like they said, it's people during COVID, everyone was scoffing like, oh, don't do your own research. Don't do it. And I heard this great comedian. He was talking about this. Is, this should be called a good thing. You who would you never, friends would never say that, oh, I'm going to go buy a car. Oh, don't, don't look it up. Don't do any of your own research. Just go talk to the sales guy. He'll tell you everything you need to know. That's, and that was, people didn't realize what they were doing yeah. and saying, but that was the whole COVID. Are you an epidemiologist? Don't do your own research. But it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah you, you get that a lot in, in academia as well. And if you want to, like you're often told, hey, if you're, unless you have a PhD, you're not allowed to have an opinion that's worth anything about economics. So you have to have been through a processing machinery and have published papers and then will respect whatever your opinion is about economics. Right. What if economics is, it, we wonder, why is it all collapsing? Why, yeah. why did we have a subprime bubble? Why do people think that it's okay that there's 40 times more derivative contracts outstanding than global GDP? It's all one giant speculative frenzy. And what happened to our manufacturing? What happened to our infrastructure that used yep. to be the backbone that gave meaning and value to our economic base? It's yep. gone. We shut it all down. We atrophied. We bled out. 
And it's if this is what the experts who are like trained in the best universities, Ivy League universities of Harvard and Yale and the University of Toronto and Oxford and Cambridge, if these greatest, smartest minds in the room are producing these effects by applying the ideas that they've learned and published in their high-end university systems with their PhDs and got the effects of total decay and self-destruction, maybe there's something wrong with those very expert opinions we're told to calibrate ourselves around or global warming, same deal. Unless you've adopted all of the core dominant assumptions by the modern secular priesthood, and it is a priesthood, but masquerading around the new, they replaced the god of religion with a new god of science. They just call it science, but it's not science if they say the debate is over. Like we don't, we're not going to, we're not going to question this medical thesis that the World Health Organization is telling us all to change our entire world around, even if it means becoming human guinea pigs for some sort of a pharmaceutical complex or shutting down our vital hydro, even hydroelectric plants and uh, hydrocarbon uh, energy facilities. All of these things are being shut down to save nature, according to the consensus of some unnamed body of so-called experts whose names I don't I'm not even allowed to know their names. I'm just told 97% of all experts say that human-made CO2 is causing the earth to change its climate. And you don't even know who their names are. It's just that they're using a a, a form of groupthink and intimidation by a top-down academic priesthood that won't allow you to publish your papers in respectable journals unless you adopt their core assumptions. Uh, Yes, CO2 causes climate, causes temperature to change. No, actually. Yeah. No, there's, well, there's so does every single human activity from flipping a light switch to being born to dying. Everything that we do creates carbon. So if it's yeah. all, if it's all we have to count our carbon, that means that our entire existence has to be micro managed. I want to talk about this because you said something really important, I think, and I'm I'm passionate about this. They talked about the science. So Karl Popper was one of the earliest and best uh, science educators, and he had a formula for science. He said. First off, he said, there is no scientific method. There is no process by which we guarantee breakthroughs. But what we have is a process that we go through that helps keep us from fooling ourselves. And it is P1 plus TS plus EE equals P2. And P1 is problem one plus temporary solution plus eliminate the errors, which we do through experimentation, observation, research, right? Collaboration with others equals p2 or you don't have you don't arrive at p2 but now you realize the flaws in your temporary solution and you loop back and come up with a new temporary solution david deutsch wrote a fantastic book it's not an easy read but it's really a great book to pick and choose chew through a couple times a year it's called the beginning of infinity he's the godfather of quantum computing and he talks about how good science is built on specific explanations with details that are hard to vary so as an example The Greeks used to have, I guess there's a myth about why we have winter. It was some goddess was kidnapped and raped and taken to Hades and the world cries. And so that's why we have winter. But the mom went down and negotiated her release a couple of months a year. And that's why we have spring and summer, because we're happy this goddess princess is coming home. But if you live on the equator, you don't have winter. And so this explanation doesn't account for those types of specificity. Whereas we used to think we were in the center of the universe and how we discovered we weren't is someone had a specific explanation. And then once we had telescopes, we were able to prove it by observing the phases of the moon and the phases of Venus. So by seeing the phases of Venus and the phases of the moon, the only way that could be explained is by the the geometry. Anyways, by the math. (laughs) It wasn't me, guys. So I'm just going (laughs) to... 
but describing there must be a giant source of light approximating this size, this distance from these things, which should be operating in these orbits in order to create shadows in this way. And that is such a specific explanation. You can't change any of the details without ruining the outcome of it. And that's what good science, like a library of books, you get one really solid, good explanation, E equals MC squared. And then you build another one on top and another one on top and another one on top. Your, your assumptions are only good as the data that is built on. And it, almost even in a company, companies do regular audits, quarterly, annual audits. We should be doing that of our assumptions in science as well, because if we've built a wall and layered 10 layers of bricks on top of a false assumption, that it becomes a linchpin for that whole wall of beliefs to come crumbling down. So to speak to your point, the truth doesn't mind being questioned. Science is asking questions and you don't need consensus in order for science. You don't need consensus. You need one, one person who's followed the scientific method and has a, a repeatable process that can explain how it works that other people can then verify for themselves. We don't need consensus. Consensus, it's not about consensus. This isn't a circle jerk. It's about, hey, I've got this empirical data this repeatable experiment that we can do that proves this. And then you work your way backwards. Yeah. Now let's go. Oh. I could, I could speak on that or sure. we can. Yeah. Cause sure. I, yeah, I, I think that that part of the, the thing that I'd observed in, in reading through a lot of these great discoverers, the people who really made big discoveries in the course of their lives, they didn't waste their time is that they have a very, um, process orientation in their minds. They're thinking about the universe, not simply from a descriptive vantage point. They don't want to just describe the universe. They recognize that they themselves subjectively are a part right. of that universe that they're right. trying to uncover. And there's this quote by Max Planck that I really enjoyed. I pulled it up as you were writing and I'm not a big, I'm not a big Karl Popper fan, but I, I don't have any disagreement in, in fundamentally yeah. in what you said about his observation about the structure of, of a discovery. But Max Planck had said in his philosophy of physics that science cannot solve the ultimate mystery of nature. And that is in the last analysis, because we ourselves are part of nature and therefore part of the mystery that we are trying to solve. Music and art are to an extent also attempts to solve or at least express that mystery. But to my mind, the more we progress in either, the more we are brought into harmony with all of nature itself. And that is one of the greatest services of science to the individual. And I like that because he's on the one hand bridging that thing I, I really want to be bridged that that arts and and science uh, mm -hmm. wall that that's been put artificially in in place by this empire that we live under. I love the fact that he's busting that wall down. And number two, I, he's busting also the wall of the objective subjective, which is not it's an artificial wall that's been put there. And number three, he's got the sense of tuning ourselves as individuals, but also tuning the species that we are also a part of that he elaborates a lot more in his essay 1938 philosophy of physics if people can find it go and read it it's great and he made discoveries it's not like he's just any old philosopher who's like commenting he's the guy who actually opened up and discovered the nature of the quantum itself by looking at black body radiation and found a way of testing it now part of the observation that he made along the way is that and this opened up the, the door to the entire quantum domain. And he worked very closely with Einstein, right? He was actually a concert pianist. Einstein was a violinist. They would perform Mozart together when they needed to unlock their creative juices that they that couldn't solve certain logical problems that they were they were grappling with. Both of them throughout their lives would play. And when they were in the same town together, they would meet up and play classical music together and then return back to their formulas and discover that they were able to tap into a creative uh, spark 
that allowed for resolutions of, of paradoxes that were unresolvable because they weren't. Uh, that's why machine learning can't replace human learning because machine learning can only do that logical, logical deductive, yeah. inductive reasoning. Yeah, whereas, there's no new knowledge created. It's just the logical. Yeah, yeah. It's just, ultimately, it's just yeah, it can add more complexity, but not higher quality. Like complexity can always be increased, but you can't get to a place where all of a sudden you can you can create a qualitatively new hypothesis that right. is mensurable to the old sets that right. pre-existed that new insight that uh, is tied to inspiration. It's tied to a variety of immaterial things that can't be charted in a computer model. And it also gives a power. As I mentioned, the human species is being tuned to the universe in that sense. What are the effects of that? One of the things, if you read LaRouche's writings, like LaRouche, he died in 2019. He was 96 years old, but he's he was somebody who was, he had set up the Fusion Energy Foundation in the 70s and 80s. He had worked with some of the most cutting edge scientists who were being at that time iced out. They were the people who made the discoveries in space and, and atomic and the mm. atomic worlds who were being at that time iced out by the new generation of technocratic positivists who were being introduced into academia and to government at that time. But they were still alive. Today, most of them are dead, unfortunately. But they were working with LaRouche around this Fusion Energy Foundation. And part of the idea of LaRouche was that, look, physical economy is based on the relationship of the mind of the individual to all of society and that there's a reciprocity, right? When somebody like a Ben Franklin discovers something like electricity, all of a sudden, the very system that Ben Franklin is a part of is now liable, susceptible to a qualitative upshift by the application of that new discovery in the form of new technologies that are made possible by that discovery having happened. And all of a sudden, you can sustain more people at a higher quality of life with greater productive forces per capita and per square kilometer that allow you to overcome the limits to growth that the British cynical imperialists who follow Thomas Malthus say is impossible because these guys are all about controlling what already exists, not encouraging new ideas and new inventions yes. to ever be brought into being because that upsets the established monopolies and the established order of controls in the yep. school system, in the banking system, in the raw material systems controls of London, which had managed the one world government before and after the American Revolution. Yeah, I love that you brought this up because there's some great examples. When the founder steps away and the accountants and the lawyers move in, no disrespect to them, we need some of these people to come in to help expand. Like you mentioned, if you can solve a problem for the world, it's almost a duty to go out and reach everyone who's in pain that you can help. That makes sense. And that's not always the founder's vision. Often the founders are the visionaries that are just passionate about doing the thing. They're not necessarily passionate about finding everyone on the planet that they can serve. And so you do need sort of the managers and the scalers to come in. But Blockbuster versus Netflix is an example I love to look at where Blockbuster was a $6 billion company and they were wiped out by a new startup called Netflix. And with $6 billion, Blockbuster could have hired any talent they wanted. They could have developed any technology they wanted. They could have bought Netflix, but they just were so focused on monetizing and expanding into new markets. They weren't really focused on what problem they solved for humanity, back to your point. And they got wiped out because they didn't realize how the competitive advantage that Netflix had. Same thing with newspapers and blogs. They lost touch with the people and what the pain point was that they solved. Blockbuster thought they were in the movie of basically toll boothing movie content, creative content. But if you are like a waitress, if you're a waiter, if you're a construction where you've been on your feet all day, you don't want to drive to a store, stand in front of a wall of paralysis by analysis, pick a movie, take it home, and then be charged extra because you're so damn busy you couldn't go back and drop it off on time. Whereas Netflix was like Domino's pizza for movies. You get a catalog, you get your menu, you pick an order, they delivered it to your house. It was just super straightforward and simple. It was a better solution to the problem. Now you mentioned the limits of growth. This is, I 
So I used to be a fan of Bill Gates. I went on a screen. I was like, I'm going to follow all the billionaires of the world. You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Let me go find these billionaires. I started following them all and drinking all their Kool-Aid. Really, some of these people are psychotic. Now, before I got to that, before I got to that, which I already knew. See, I left Canada and went and worked in California and I helped a company make over $3 million in under eight months. Eight months. And what happened with all that money washed around just bewildered me. Because in my mind, I'm like, we won the Super Bowl. We've got the Super Bowl winning team. We need to keep the team together, right? We need to go and win more games and create a legacy. Whereas it was like, it just became shark infested waters and like the, the social games, like the, I don't even know how to, I'm, I'm reaching for terms here, but they just like, people became manipulative. There was the social dynamics suddenly became into play. And this person ate that person's commission and pushed them out and brought their people in. I was just so shocked at how things went. Cause I'm like the, you guys destroyed it. We had a championship team. And you were so focused on the fucking money in the bank account now that what about all the money we could have made had if we kept everyone together? And I was just bewildered by that. And I, I used to love, I used to be a fan of Bill Gates. And then I remember in January, 2020, he published a video on his YouTube channel called Limits of Growth. And I'm like, hey, I've heard of that somewhere. Where do I know that? And I started Googling it. And then you find out about the Club of Rome and the, and the whole like where the planet can only handle so many people. And even if we make developments in technology, it's never going to be enough. But you can't predict the future like that. This is the managers came in, not the inventors, not the creators, not the founders. This is the accountants and the lawyers have moved in and they have this limited worldview and they've scaled it and they've profited by taking someone's idea, someone's product, someone's solution. Bill Gates didn't even make the operating system, right? He just took it and he just ran it through to the, the, and to our benefit. We wouldn't be able to do this call without that. But at this point, they lack the vision. They don't understand that process. They think they do. And maybe they have their own creative process, but this whole limits of growth thing, it was like, oh, well, the planet can only handle about 2 billion people. And we're all going to die if we don't do anything about that. And Mao killed tens of millions in this vision, in this vision to for we're doing the, the, the dirty deed now to save future generations. Where did all this start? Is it the Club of Rome? Obviously, we had the Kazarian Mafia. Like, where does this begin? And people, I've heard people say there's no such thing as good and evil. And I go, if you want to live, then you know that drinking bleach is not good. And if someone tried to get you to drink bleach, that could be deemed as evil. So clearly there is a good and evil if you want to stay alive. It doesn't, it might be the other side of the coin, like mushrooms and fungus eat dead things. It's food to them. I don't want to eat my feces, but there's other things that like it. But for me, eating feces is bad. So there is good and bad for me. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And I, okay, from a metaphorical standpoint, yeah, there's something about the cycles of nature that we could, you take in from as lessons from the external world, what you need and where you're, and it's also shaped by where you're at. So if you're a, a selfish prick, you will look at some of these metaphors of nature of the cyclical nature of the carbon cycle of, of other things. And you'll be like, that proves that stasis and limits are embedded in nature. And to be good natural beings, we should just be as static as possible. Yes. And maybe we should try to convince people to eat their own feces at the end of the day and and become right. perfect closed eat, eat systems. We can maybe get <laughs> find a way to put some sugar on it and, and sell it to them. Maybe they'll even want to do that. It's called Coca-Cola. And whatever, but and but you can give it a sexy branding. You, you can make mud seem sexy and tasty if you could get people to get people who are celebrities yep. to promote it. 
it's even like heavy metal. I remember when I was in school, a lot of the kids were listening to heavy metal around me when I was in 12, 13 years old. I didn't like it, but I didn't want to be the loner. And so I forced myself. I bought a couple of CDs, Pantera and a few <laughs> other things. And I just forced myself to listen and listen. And after a while, I got to tell you, I started liking it. And that's humans. If we intend to, if we have that intention, everything unnatural can become something enjoyable to a degree. There's still right. something wrong. deep, And you can see that you put a kid in a in a room, three, four years old, and you just pump in heavy metal, the kid's going to start crying. They want to get out of the room, right? You right. play some Mozart or some Bach to a child, they'll, they're just going to be happy. And they did studies like this on, rat, on rats going through mazes using one test, test group with no sound, no music. They got through on average at a certain speed. Another sound, another group with with Mozart being played, they improved their speed of problem solving. And then they had a, another group with, I forget which, I think it was Nine Inch Nails. And, and they started cannibalizing themselves. So it just wow. shows you that, yeah, like they actually started like eating their bodies, right? And it, so it just shows you that even in the fabric of nature, there's frequencies, there's rhythms, there, there's cycles. And depending on, like I said, if you're a, if you're somebody who's just focused on your, yourself first, managing things for the sake of some lower motive, then you will take in the uh, like the worst lessons that nature could show. Whereas right. if you are somebody who is creative and you really just want to make things work, then you are going to take a different, you'll look at the same things and take in a completely different set of lessons from that yeah. process. And you'll notice that, look, we're living in a world that's very thriving and bustling with life on the third rock from a sun. And it's a miraculous thing because first of all, how, but Number like other planets don't have this rich density of life, but right, also right. we have to imagine that at a certain point there are, there wasn't life on the planet, and then for whatever thing we haven't discovered why yet, then the life appeared, and life didn't just appear and stay the way it was with single celled amoebas five hundred million years ago in the Precambrian. It there was a, something that resulted in that phase of simple celled right. cycles, very slow sets of motions, and very hard to detect probably that life to the point that you had higher forms of organisms emerge, Old, older systems disappeared. 99.9% .9 of the, the species that have ever been don't no longer exist, right. not because of humans with SUVs, but it's part of something going on in our solar system right. and in our galaxy that we have yet to understand, but we should be thinking about. Yep. But all of a sudden we're having a conversation over like light communication on satellites that is allowing us to have this conversation at two sides of the earth. Yep. And you're like, what caused that process? So it embedded within the individual cycles within short periods of time, you've got this higher function of, of life leaping over the limits to growth, right? Mm -hmm. Going outside of the aqueous environment of early life to becoming land spreading living speed to, to creating new types of things like chlorophyll that all of a sudden appeared allowing for the radiant sun, sun's energy to be trans used right. to fulfill biological or, uh, functions that involve transforming carbon dioxide into oxygen and back and forth, right? So you got this whole process of ongoing creation that all of a sudden we seem to appear on the scene and can all of a sudden embody that in a self-conscious way. And what would take maybe a million years if left to itself, like a desert turning into something green, which happens right. sometimes green things turn desert and sometimes deserts turn green over time. Yep. We can all of a sudden take like desalination of ocean water, or Mediterranean water, like Gaddafi was doing. Yep. desalinate, bringing it into deserts that all of a sudden can do something in 10, 20 years that would take otherwise maybe 10,000 or 100,000 years yes. if left to itself. <clears throat> so this is, so we, like, humans are knowledge creation machines. This is, and again, David Deutsch, talk about AI. Mm -hmm. AI, it needs to be able to create new knowledge, not like, again, 
if we just infer things based off of what we observe, we would never have really figured out that the sun was the middle of the universe. We wouldn't have. Someone had to have that imagination, that creative process to come up with that and then create with how do we test an experiment to prove it? This is like this romanticized concept of spaceship Earth. Oh, we're on this planet and it's our spaceship and we just need to take care of it and they'll take care of us. The bandwidth of longitude and latitude that humans survive in without all of our technology and developments is mm. incredibly narrow. You're, we're both Canadian. You couldn't live in Canada. You would die. The pioneers did die. The pioneers did die. They came in like the spring and summer was like, wow, this is paradise. And then it turned to winter and most of them died because it wasn't spaceship earth. It wasn't this beautiful place where, oh, I just pick things up from the ground and eat them. If you look at the evolution of even the watermelon, we couldn't get the calories that we needed from watermelon until we crossbred it and trained it to give us and produce this bountiful fruit. So it's literally of, of this, it's a symbiotic relationship where we're as much part of the planet as the planet is us. If you, how much of a fish is water versus, or ocean versus, you take the fish out of the ocean, it ceases to be a fish. So we're yeah. part of this, but at the same time, it is like a, a yin-yang, almost adversarial relationship in a sense where we are almost like a friendly competition, making each other better, hopefully by trying like all this stuff. We like, if I left you alone in the woods, was Joe, Joe Rogan said this, if I dropped you off, left you alone in the woods, how long till you came back with a cell phone? Left you there and you just had to build everything from scratch. There's this process where we turn the world into, we are knowledge creation machines. Yeah. And some rule yeah, books are written in blood. And this huh. is where I think that's almost the rule, the, the role religions tried to play. Hey, here's some of the rules that we've learned that were written, that were written in blood and across them. I'm spiritual, not religious, but it's just hard to argue with some of them, especially in light of certain things. That have been happening. So I, I know <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time. And I just want to get like, how, what's your overview of the prognosis? I know before when we talked about doing this interview, not Nazis in parliament and the fact Christina Freeland's like grandfather and uncle are all SS Nazis. The fact that Trudeau's dad let thousands of Nazis into Canada, knowing their names and knowing there were war criminals just was like, yeah, come on, set up homes here. And somehow they hid them or they just hid in plain sight basically for years. That became suddenly common knowledge amongst Canadians. It was a real wake-up call because before we talked about eugenics and, hey, some of this stuff that's happened with COVID really seems to have echoes of history. People just balked at you. But this is not, this is not the last five years. This is, it goes way deeper than this. And for those people, like what, from your research, like where did it start? Our last interview, we talked about the city of London being the hub of it all because of their colonization of the colonies. But I think it even happened before that. And I I know I know of the Kazarian Mafia. I don't know the Kazarian Mafia. Okay. But I, yeah. All right, let's break this down, all right? And don't worry, as you were talking, I just canceled my, uh, I had a, a little telephone call schedule. I, I pushed it over a couple hours. Yeah. So we, we can okay. go on for a little extra while because I think that you're bringing up something that I find is important to talk about. Okay. And I did forget to address it in the previous question. I. In my Clash of the Two Americas book series, volume three and volume four, I have two chapters in either one on Kazaria. There, there are a lot of sub-narratives throughout history that have been created by the very oligarchy that's been continuously trying to manipulate us. Because ultimately, what does the oligarchy want? What does any oligarch really ultimately want? The motive, whether today or in, in ancient Greece and Rome or in Babylon... It's ultimately, or in the medieval times during the Crusades, it's ultimately qualitatively the same thing, which is 
stasis, obedience, feudalism. They want a glorified, absolute, crystallized strata of master-slave relations with a feudal mass of slave families that are perfectly obedient and happy to be slaves, unwilling to test out new ideas or push the limits of what they're permitted to live in mentally and physically under a lord class of inbred hierarchically self-ordained masters in their privilege that they were born into with their and so that's all that really they want at the end of the day they want the right to be perpetually lazy and useless and have people serve them um also called parasites sorry (laughs) yeah it's a bit of freudian projection what they're doing is that they then project out and say the the worst attributes of the oligarchical social uh class is what we are as humans in general and then they get us to think that we're all like little versions of oligarchs and we're thus all naturally parasites and the world would be better off with much fewer of us and that's how they brainwash especially kids by getting them to think okay we multiplied just cancer cells and so we're just like a cancer against gaia they've done the same sort of sleight of hand the, there, there is a parasitic class, but as we're talking, it's it's the oligarchy. Yeah. And they proceed, before there was Kazaria, there was this oligarchy, okay? It goes back in a direct continuity. Some of the leading families today, like the Orsini family, there's a whole handful of families openly trace their heritage back, their lineage to several doges, a couple of popes before that, even to, to a couple of emperors of Rome. Some of the leading families that manage the cult structures because Rome was managed by cults and subcults like the cult of Dionysus, the cult of Mithramiter, which is the military cults. There is the cult of Sibel, which is a precursor to, to what became the Gaia cult, the Earth Mother Gaia worship. A lot of these involved pagan rituals, sacrifice of children, Baal and Baphomet became also outgrowths of some of these things. A lot of them are tied. If, if you look at the Greek or the Roman or the Babylonian or Persian pantheons, or the Assyrian pantheons of, of gods, oftentimes they're they're tied to certain planets, certain, but they're 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 often the same gods, but with different names that accommodate different cultures. But it's the same gods. Like Apollo, before it was Apollo, was the Greek manifestation of the god of Marduk. Previous mm. to Apollo's existence, that was the dominant god of the Babylonian pantheon, managed by a priesthood that had a sort of set of rites of initiations to go through mystery, a sort of set of rituals that would induce the mind of the initiate to deconstruct their humanity in order to be reconstructed around what would be more in harmony with an oligarchical Mm. destiny for that person, whether they were in a higher family to be an upper, an upper alpha plus, or whether they were going to be an auxiliary, somebody who is going to be a technocratic manager within a certain jurisdiction they would have to go through a set of experiences to make them more trustworthy so that their decisions would be then shaped by a a self-identity that would be given to them by a set of acts that would worship one of these ultimately satanic gods. And Apollo became a precursor. He's the god of light, became a precursor for Lucifer, the morning star. Yeah, they're just rebrandings of the what is ultimately the same thing. I'm saying this because in my book series and in my research, I was surprised to discover that Kazaria is a windag. It's a, a false hate object that was crafted for us going back quite a while. But I think it was really Arthur Kersler who was the first to put forth this weaving of the historic narrative for people who would be, for those 
who would be inclined to to recognize a continuity of conspiracy utilizing banking agencies as we know that there are for those who would who, whose minds would go there there would be sub narratives to capture their minds in controlled cages the kazaria cage which was then amplified by david ike in the 1990s right. and it took on a, a life of its own after that painted the image of like mordor from lord of the rings as kazaria it's this this area of today's part of russia ukraine eastern europe right. that was a zone that converted to judaism it was formerly a, a turkic kingdom that had moved north under king bulan settled uh, as a kingdom and for whatever reason we don't know not a lot of rec most of the records have been destroyed so we don't have that much to we have some things but not very much to work with right but so there's a lot of speculation that fills in the void but they there was a conversion in around 750 to judaism at, in the kingdom that accompanied a period of renaissance massive qualitative bursts of creative increase in the christian world of charlemagne who, who he was the son of Pepin the Short, not a great name, but a really great leader who's, who did a lot to unify the, the Christian world. And Charlemagne did a lot to create this massive dynasty. They purged the remnants of the pagan cults that had taken control of the Western Roman Empire. And there was a period of just like cathedral building, teaching of orphans, building canals, internal improvements, and most importantly, a foreign policy centered around cooperation on win cooperation with your neighbors in the case in that time it was in the muslim world you had the abbasid dynasty of harun al-rashid who coexisted as the head of the the muslim world with uh, charlemagne and they were friends there was efforts to try to get a, a muslim christian religious war by the by rome who had a, a puppet pope at the time run by the remnants of the roman empire who who consolidated their their power after rome collapsed in the west a lot of these leading families moved partially to some of them moved into Constantinople to recreate the Byzantine Empire in the Eastern Roman area. And there's a lot of evil there. There was some good there too, but a lot of evil. Then a big chunk went to Venice and began reconstructing the empire in Venice as the new center of command, which it later on became for about 800 years of the entire world. And then a few also maintained themselves around Rome itself, around the papacy. So they were trying to get this conf this religious war that became later on the Crusades. They tried to get the Crusades started 200 years earlier. Mm. And the way that Charlemagne got around it is he said to, to Arun al-Rashid, he sent a, an embassy to him and he said, look, hey, look, that Holy Land, technically we're being pushed into a war to take it back. There's a lot of pressure on Charlemagne to get into a war. And Harun al-Rashid said, okay, here's what we're going to do. He sends the embassy back with an elephant as a gift to, to Charlemagne. And he says, I'm going to give you the deed to the Holy Land. It's yours. You can have it. And I will be your protect. I will protect it, but it's yours. And the elephant is too. And Charlemagne rode that elephant for 20 years. To battle and everything. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's cool. And they had this blossoming. So in, in the case of the Muslim world, you had the Abbasid Renaissance, increases of life expectancy, arts, poetry increased, but you had these, what's called the houses of wisdom. These all over Baghdad, you had Jews and Christians and even Chinese and Indians would go to the Muslim world in Baghdad and they would read the original writings of the Greeks that were being translated. They would do astronomy together. There were, there were, all of, there were dozens of these things. They were growing up also in, in Europe too. Now, the thing with Khazaria is it seemed to be a mediating zone of diplomatic 
brilliance. The All of the diplomats of Kazaria would speak upwards of 13, 14 languages. You had the Jewish Radonite traders as well that had maintained the trade routes around the Silk Road that had been revived between the Tang Dynasty. Because the key thing here is China. That's right. what makes all of this possible, is that China at the time had overcome a 450-year dark age where after the collapse of the Han Dynasty, which was a 400-year-long dynasty that had seen for the first time the emergence of the Silk Road, in uh, 200 BC, and that that maintained itself until about 280, when the Tang Dynasty, when the when the Han collapsed, it went into a dark age. Kind of what happened to Rome when Rome collapsed. You had the, Aus- the Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, the Huns, everybody just coming up as warlords, taking control of little territorial zones after the system collapsed into chaos. Same thing was happening in in China. Populations collapsed, divide to conquer. Right? There's like tons of little mini micro lords, warlords, and then it was resolved with the Tang Dynasty. In around 618, 618. And within 50 years, the, the, the Tang Dynasty revives the Silk Road, which is the transit corridors of economic commerce between China and Europe, moving mm. through mostly part. There's one main, main corridor through the Middle East, and it was Jewish Radonite traders that were stationed maintaining the trade routes. And again, they spoke many languages. You had the, the delegations going, like the embassies were being often trained by the Khazaria, had a very big role to play in managing peace peaceful relations between coexisting kingdoms, big Jewish community being also set up with a big Muslim community in China at the time. Like the Muslims had even sent an army of 5,000 to help the the Chinese emperor put down a, a civil war. And out of that, the Chinese were so grateful that they gave the Muslims free land to, to live, which they did. And that's where the Xinjiang, that's why there's Muslims in China today, because they saved China and they saved the Silk Road. And, and in Khazaria, it wasn't just the Jewish kingdom, because at the same time as they converted, the way it was set up was around a, a supreme court, like a judicial system, which had seven judges that would judge the laws of the land and that the king was subservient to, in many ways, was subservient to. You had two, two positions were for Christians, two positions were for Muslims, two positions were for Jews, and one was for like a Stoic or a pagan from the Greek the Grecian period. And so you have this ecumenical structure, and there's a whole variety of other things too. They, they actually didn't have their own army. They didn't have a Jewish army. They had a Muslim army. <laughs> That's another thing. So Khazaria actually had an arrangement with King Harun al-Rashid, who provided a Muslim army of defense with the condition that, that Khazaria would be defended by them under the one condition that unless any war were waged that would benefit yeah, the Jews, the Jewish kingdom. In that case, they would turn on them. So it was a good way to keep them both in check, but also to yeah. create a trustworthy relationship. And they lived in Kazaria. So it was, again, a very, this is something that the oligarchy has been obsessively afraid of being revived again. They've been working desperately to stop it. And that's what the Crusades were all about. It took them a, a lot longer after, after Charlemagne dies. It takes them a few generations to start breaking up the Christian kingdom using Charlemagne's three stupid sons. Pepin the second and Louis the whatever. Anyway, they're Charles the bald. Anyway, there's stupid grandsons and they, they like had a Dick a, Tracy movie. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's not that different. It's a way, to, but these stupid kids, they're all opportunists and they're, they're persuaded by advisors yeah. who conveniently yeah. often come from Venice to sign something called the oath of Strasbourg in 842 or 843. 
And this oath basically carves up Charlemagne's territory into three sub kingdoms. And that's where the borders of because people wonder, like, where do the borders of today's European nations come from? That's where it came from. They mm. so they began the carving up here uh, process with Lothar, the stupid or Lothar, the unfortunate one getting the Lotharingia in the middle of the two opposing areas, which and then these two kids on the on either side of Lothar's domain sign a treaty of the I think it's called the Treaty of Verdun that basically agrees a mutual offensive pact that both that's of them will him. team up against their brother. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was thinking about that. I'm like, that's, yeah. From a military standpoint, you got two borders left and right to watch. It's not good. Yeah. No. <laughs> so a lot of the animosity, a lot of the animosity to this very day between the revanchist feelings between the French and the, the Germans around like Alsace-Lorraine that goes back over a thousand years. It's all these like historic feelings of pain that have all been created by the backstabbing and the wars over these little territories that constantly flap, flip flop. And so the Crusades were finally waged that put a, a total end and the trade routes that the, like the, the Jesus, the trade routes, not the Knights Hospitalier, the Knights Templar. So the Knights Templar, as well as the Knights Hospitalier, the calories, whatever, but the, they're both two orders created around the same time. Both of them seem to have a direct continuity to the ancient Baphomet worshiping ceremonies of ancient Rome and even earlier. And that's partially why the French and the papacy eventually cracked down upon the Templars. Yeah, the, the Templars, they got, they were, they were executed for blasphemy and you weren't allowed to be, you weren't allowed to work in the Vatican if you were a Freemason or a Templar in any way. They, they also controlled they the banking that. systems, right? Yeah. Like they actually controlled the vast, they were the dominant banking centers of the world where the Templar order and the, the vast majority, nine out of 10 Templars were not mercenaries. They were administrators of finance mm -hmm. and they were able to use that position. Also, they took control of the Radonite trade routes along the Silk Road to become the new routes that, that were used to wage the Crusades. So the, the Templars had there eventually got the testicles of the various leaders across Europe into a vice of constant debt and warfare. And that's where I don't know the full motive. I don't, I, I doubt that any, it's hard to find in this period, like good guys. <laughs> it's, it's really like gangs in New York. Like it's mm. raw mafia gang counter gang operations. But at a certain point, somebody decides they had enough and it happens to be the, the French King and also the, the Pope. And the Knights Hospitaller, which becomes the Knights of the Temple of the Knights of St. John of Jerusalem and the Order of Malta. They, these are the newer manifestations later on of the Knights Hospitaller end up getting a lot of the possessions of the Templars and the Templars have to go underground, but they continue doing the same thing that they were right. always doing. They just did it now with, they just had a new base of operations in Scotland, a few other things. This becomes a basis of the later revival of the, in, in the Masonic or the pre-Masonic Rosicrucian Order which ends up taking control of the courts of the intelligence services, especially of, of England. That then becomes the basis around which the later Royal Society of, of Britain is created, like the scientific society that Isaac Newton leads, which is basically just a black magic occult uh, secret society that then gives birth to the United Grand Lodge of Great of Masonry in Britain. That's the central command of the Scottish Rite later on. So you have this sort of direct continuity of a lot of these things. And what they tried to do is destroy people's idea of basically say that everything that they've been doing since the days of Babylon is what the what the Jews are. And the Jews became a very convenient hate absorber for everybody who had been burned by the oligarchy's machinations, which they still are to this day. That's why the Protocols of Zion were created by the Okrana and British intelligence back in the late 1890s. 
they did it because they're that that's the, always their go-to point. Everybody hates the Jews, and why? It's because the Jew, like some of the Jewish families, were convenient, useful operate like tools in the time of you had Pharaoh's Jews. So his preferred sort of house slave Jews would be right. used to then to do the banking operations. Oftentimes, very dirty work in Rome. You had the same thing. A lot of the a lot of the Roman higher up Jews weren't just tax collectors, but were also bankers for the em- the empire. But they were ultimately what became known in the Middle Ages as the, the Hof Juden, the court Jews. They were more than happy to kill their own Jewish brethren in service right. to their master than they, right. as they were killing another ethnicity of Christians. They didn't care. They were ultimately it's more satanic than anything else. And, and so when you did a really good job and you were consistent, you would be given like often a little mercenary dynasty for your kids and grandkids. And like the Bronfmans are a Canadian branch of one group that did some good services to their overlords back in the 18 or, you know, early period of the prohibition era. They were so good at it that they were granted a little uh, hereditary dynasty, a -hmm. little micro dynasty for Canada, but they're still not able to make their own decisions. The the Rothschilds are slightly older, but even there, like Amschild came about, got his made his fame and fortune in the 1760s, 1750s. Given a, he was given a hereditary dynasty for his kids in various parts of Europe, ultimately still disposable, but useful operatives for the like upper level servants for the empire. Yeah, There's a few yeah, other. Yeah. And, but the vast majority of the Jews were put into pogroms. So in Venice, that was the first nation in the, in the ni- in 960 that banned made made laws that made it illegal for a Jew to access trade schools, to be part of a guild, to to farm, to be allowed to enter military service, to travel on a boat. Ultimately, they created such confined regions that they're even the idea of the ghetto came from Venice. That's the center mm. of the of the satanic hive, as far as I could see in my analysis, has Venice. been centered in Venice. Venice is the key. And that's where the first ghetto was created. It's a Venetian term that they're only allowed to live in this one area. They're only allowed to do the trading of dirty cloth or banking services, financial services, money lending with interest. But that would be then used for their masters who would want them to do that for the sake of economic warfare against other country or other rivals of Venice. And people who got burned, again, they started hating the Jews and then it spread. So the the, the Venetian anti-Jewish laws were then passed in Germany and Prussia and in England in the early 10 hundreds and 11th century. And it became like a general thing. Everybody's going to hate the Jews and crack down the, on the Jews. The, the Romans had it earlier on. And and the oligarchy loves it. They, they love it because it keeps people's minds away from the direct continuity of the ancient Babylonian mystery cults that gave birth to Lucifer and Satan. And that are the same ones in charge today under a new garb of scientism that is co- a cover for a still existent, directly continuous that, mystery cults. Yes, the mystery cults. So... What do you know about the times where they've been successfully purged or combated? I would say for that one, and here, let, let's round out our interview with this because I've given people a lot to chew on. But for this particular one, I would say people should, and I, if they can't afford my books, I, I encourage you to. I encourage people who might be listening to this to go and buy the Clash of the Two Americas, Volume One to Four, for the because the whole thing is written about. It's written around that the attempt to answer that very question, what are all of the case studies that I could find throughout the last 3000 years of dis- of observable history where the oligarchy was defeated in their machinations? That's the whole point. 
Mm. And it happens to be the case that a lot of the highest density defe defeats of the oligarchy's agenda and, and, and efforts came about with the American Revolution and in dr dramatic efforts made that are heroic in the wake of the American Revolution, both in the USA especially, but also in Canada to a certain extent. Hence, the Untold History of Canada book series as well goes through some of the, those stories that have been written out of our textbooks and other nations as well. You'll find it in China. There's some amazing stories there. You'll find it in Russia, some amazing stories. I would say even the present the present age that we're living in right now is one of those stories unfolding currently, which I think the only parallel I see to the developments un underway now are what I had seen with the Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Chinese alliance of the 8th century, 9th century around Charlemagne, Khazaria, Harun al-Rashid and the Tang dynasty. I had not seen anything since then, even in sim that comes close to what I see now emerging with these civilizational states, China, Russia, Iran, India. Now Syria is seeing yep. like President Bashar al-Assad just came back to Damascus from a long visit in Beijing. Very fruitful. Africa is going through a major Pan-African yep. renaissance as well. That's something that is is really giving me a lot of inspired hope. Yeah, um, especially with so I think that's a that is something that will be written about in history books. Other up until now, it's still a work in progress. There's right. problems. There's still deep state operations within a variety of these countries too that are trying oh, to yeah. subvert the good from within China, within Russia, within India, within Iran. But overall, I see a really inspired fight. But yeah, buy my books. And if, you, if people can't afford the books for whatever reason, I, I get it. Times are tough economically. Send me an email and I'll send you some free PDFs. Email CanadianPatriot1776 at tutanota.com. T-U-T-A-N-O-T-A -A dot com. Send me that an email there. Ask for the PDFs. I'll send them to you. So that's CanadianPatriot1776 at tutanota. Tuta Nota, it's a German encrypted uh, email service that I use. Yeah. T U T A N O T A dot com. Yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. Matt, I love our conversations. I love the research you've done. I feel like you provide the citations for the breadcrumbs that I feel like I've discovered. And uh, so I very much value our time together. Daryl, I, I got to say, too, I really enjoy the reference point that you're coming at me from as well. I, you're bringing in a whole bunch of associations and lessons that you've gleaned from your time working within Silicon Valley, within the business sector that I don't have that experience. And I just appreciate also you sharing that because I also have friends who a lot of my friends, they're communist and they tell me, oh, there's nothing good from capitalism. It, it only causes destruction. I'm like, there is a lot of destruction. That's true. But. There's also this authentic, like healthy, creative, moral capitalism that you 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 haven't discovered yet, and so just hearing you talking is an embodiment of the type of good. There is no there is no civil war over indoor plumbing. People are like, that is <laughs> fantastic. I okay, sign me up for one. No one was like, no to toilets. They're the bait. No, like everybody was like, can you come to my house and give me a toilet? I would love that toilet. Yes, please. Can we? <laughs> my bucket this bucket just smells i can't throw it very far from my door so there there are genuine there are genuine things that have improved everyone's livelihood obviously you can just look from the 1900s to now we've double tripled our lifespan all the developments you mentioned like america america is such an anomaly where we really have to protect that now you do have to be wary of monopolies uh, yeah freedom versus equality if everyone's equal no one is free so there's no incentive to be a higher producer or to innovate 
And if everyone is free, then no one is equal. And you can have generational inequalities, which doesn't necessarily do anyone good because we've all had monopolies that monopolistic corporations we dealt with where we're just like, man, I wish I had an alternative. It's like sitting on hold, dealing with terrible customer service reps and parasitic pricing programs. But I'm optimistic. I think if we can shed ourselves, shake off these parasites, that's uh, a new golden era. Like I'm very optimistic. I forget Neil, I think his name is Neil something. He wrote the book, The Fourth Turning. I saw he did an interview with Tony Robbins. They were talking about the cycles of civilization and that they typically take 20 to 30 years. There's six generations, like flavors. If your parents coddled you too much, you grow up and be like, I'm not going to smother my kids. And then your kids grow up and they're like, my mom didn't hug me enough. And so it's like these six, like almost inevitable, like personalities to generations in that. And then like a four, like a summer, spring, summer, fall, winter. And that these cycles happen again and again, and that we're in one now. And his prediction was, it's going to be about 2020, 2030, 2035, before we really hammer out the details and come through whatever it is that we're going through right now. But that it's almost like if we have, there's two directions. One is we could enter a new dark ages if we don't handle it well, or we could have a new golden era. And I'm really, I, I love some of the breakthroughs that we've seen this year. Even our original interview, I interviewed you. I interviewed Dr. Robert Malone before he was on big mainstream Joe Rogan, all that. And I published them and all of a sudden downloads from my podcast just disappeared. It was like my podcast ceased to be listed in places, which was really strange. And then that ended, I'd say probably early 2022, perhaps. And then we've been building back up since, but it's just, it's, I'm very optimistic. There's cracks in the dam. People are waking up. People are seeking out experts with you, like contrarian views compared to the mainstream. People are seeing like, it's just the, the nuts are on the table, so to speak. Like it's really hard. Like they're trying to bring back COVID so bad. And it's just, there's a lot of like the unvaccinated didn't die. What's up with that? There's just these things people can't ignore. And I, it's conversations like this between people like you and I, that hopefully can be listened to hundreds and thousands, I think are what we need more of because the, it's the control of information now that I think is, I think this is the fifth generation warfare and that it, a lot of it is social engineering and manipulation and people there's all, I better wind this up. Cause I could go on another tirade, but people don't believe or don't want to believe like we're all good people. And so it's hard for us to fathom what psychopaths would do because we would never do that. The story I like to use, I think it was Queens University. I'm not sure, but I remember reading about a study on squirrels and that if a squirrel had stolen buried food of another squirrel, when it was burying food, if a squirrel saw it burying it, it would finish it, leave, and then come back when that squirrel was gone and move it. But if a squirrel had never stolen food from another squirrel, they didn't care who saw them because they couldn't imagine someone would still, like, I'm getting my food. I'm taking myself. I don't, why, I don't need to be worried about that. And it's this idea that since the most general, the general population are good natured people, like Canada, I feel like Canada was just cannon fodder for psychopaths because we're just like the hobbits of the planet. If the world was Lord of the Rings, Canada would be the hobbit, the shire, <laughs> because we're all just easygoing good people and we're known worldwide as the friendly people. But there's not a big difference. You have to be careful where kindness is weakness. And and, and this and it's just weaponized. It's, it's, it's weird, right? Because it's it's both. I agree with you on the hobbit Canadian thing. And it's it's this it's got a, it's a dual use weapon in a sense because it's it, it can do a lot of great good or great bad and you saw with the with the trucker convoy there's sort of, sort of natural yeah. salt of the earth innocence which is so good yeah and breathtaking yeah. when you just see people who are just good people not big they wasn't driven by some intellectual right. analysis of things but it was like this is wrong my life is being threatened i got to do something in peace 
and it was yeah. done across Canada and we saw the effect of it was gigantic. Yeah. But at the same time, and the hobbits did save the world, right? And right. at the end of the day, but at the same time, it does lack that needed Promethean spark of leadership, which you tended to see arise a lot more in the case of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, John mm -hmm. F. Kennedy. Like there's a, a higher density of, and I say the Promethean character, because I'm talking about the specific personality type, which emerges occasionally. We're blessed if you get a, a Promethean figure once in a generation. I, I don't mean right. this because the Satanists have their own version of a perverse Promethean right. figure. Right, right, and right. I don't mean that. I don't mean the defiant Lucifer that stood up to right. a god. I, I don't mean that one. I'm talking about the actual Prometheus of Aeschylus, the plate of Plato, but the, mm. who stood up to Zeus from Aeschylus's story. Who and when Zeus said, "Fire shall not be granted to mankind; they must remain my playthings, living in in caves forever." And Prometheus, the demigod, said, "No, this is wrong." He stole fire after a drunken frenzy and orgy of, of, of which Zeus did every night. Get, taught mankind how to use fire. And also, and, and Aeschylus is clear, it wasn't just fire, but also statecraft, animal husbandry, astronomy, the arts, like all of that. Fire is representation. And, and as a consequence, he he was chained to a rock to have his liver eaten every night for 10,000 years by a vulture's punishment, which he could stop at any time by telling Zeus a certain story that Zeus wanted to hear. And he wouldn't do it, which is like Prometheus knew how Zeus was going to fall was going to be destroyed mm. and he would refuse because Prometheus means also foresight and he refused to tell Zeus how he was going to go down and, and chose to take the pain and he's very clear that it's through the love of mankind that I'm able to do this and and this is what you saw with the a lot of the founding fathers who risked their lives who died to create this new potential for mankind you saw it with like I said you you read the writings of Martin Luther King who saw the promised land he knew and, and he knew that he was likely going to be killed. And despite that, you could read his last or listen to his last speech on YouTube and his from the mountaintop speech. People should listen to that, actually. And you could see that's Promethean. And we just don't have too many of them. We got a Papino yeah. here and there. We got a Mackenzie from the 1830s. We got a little element of it coming up now and again with Premier David, Premier Johnson, the first with uh, who was a friend of Charles de Gaulle. Yep. You have... Maybe W.A.C. Bennett had an element of it, the premier of B.C. for 20 years. He's a nation builder, good guy. Still not the same intensity as the characters from the United States, but good people. Right. But we need more of that. So there, when you don't have that type of high quality leadership, you do run the danger of people who are easily emotionally exhausted, broken, and adaptable yeah. to systems of feudalism. And that's also a big danger for Canadians. So we got to yeah. sort of... Oh, yeah. The I mean, there's a lot of people that want universal basic income and all these things. And I just, I encourage people to just, Find their ikigai if they can. That that intersection between what you're passionate about, what you're what people will pay for, and what you're good at, and try to serve the world. Because I just like I had an early retirement. I retired early in my 30s, and I lasted about a week, two weeks. And I was just like, you just need more. You just need more. Like just you go through all your vices and you do them, and then you're like, is this it? This is it. And then you you have to be aware of the vices taking over you, like this. It's real. The virtues and the vices are real. The seven deadly, was it seven deadly vices? Sins. Seven, seven deadly, deadly sins. sins. Yeah. Sorry. I haven't had my, I haven't had my morning coffee yet, but they're real. And that's why I say some rule books are written in blood. <clears throat> There's just some merit to some things. And I really do believe there is good and evil. And yeah, I just hope I just, I'm really confident and I'm just grateful you shared some time with us today to talk about this so we can get this message out to the world. Cause that's what we need. We need more discussions, more communications. Less people being distracted.
right? When you're the magician's trick, you're looking over here, yep. you're so distracted, running the hamster wheel of making enough to pay your bills to feed your kids that, are, that you're not paying attention to what's happening over here. And some things, the wheels are so slow turning, people lack the mental fortitude to pay attention to it for that long. And that's the, one of the things that the oligarchs have in their favor is they think in terms of a hundred, 500 year plans, where most people are like by Tuesday. And so that's, and that's partially why they keep getting to push this agenda forward. And so yeah. thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate your time today. I do want to be respectful of it. So if, again, if people want to learn more, if they want to find out more, where can they get on touch? Where can they follow? Where should they plug you in? Go to canadianpatriot.org, uh, risingtidefoundation.net. My substack, matthewair.substack.com. And also I would say my wife and I were working with a, a, a collaborator who's been, who teamed up with us and has been helping us make um, very high-end video production. So we've been now making, we've jumped into the the documentary domain over the past year. We're now, we've just released something. That's the Rising Tide YouTube channel? Yeah, there's the Rising Tide Foundation YouTube channel. Go to YouTube, type in Rising Tide Foundation, you'll find it. There's the new video, a new six-part series. Episode one is now out on Escaping Calypso's Island by my wife. We're going to be doing something on the, the UFO PSYOP as well. What's the direct continuity between the current effort to try to create a new a modern drug-induced mystery initiation into the a, a, a rebranded um, occult structure of pagan systems that we had contaminating the world pre and during the Christian era. And they're revamping that, but now with aliens that they've been working on bringing in for the past century following the script of H.G. Wells. So that's going to be another several-part documentary series that we're also going to be releasing the first one on Halloween, actually. So if people want to watch those, spread them, help us make them go viral. And also if people want to help us fund them, each one costs money. So we're always fundraising. If you send me an email and ask me how to do that, and I'll tell you, because we definitely need uh, citizen help to make right. that happen. Matt, thank you so much. Go check out CanadianPatriot.org. Go check out, what are the other ones? RisingTideFoundation.net and Substack. And Substack. Matthew, thank you All so right. much. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Send in love, my friend. We'll talk again soon. All right. That was a pleasure.